to talk this morning a little bit about the Westminster Assembly um, because it has an impact on how we think about worship. Remember, the whole point of all of this was not to give you the history of English worship. Uh, the point of this was not to give you a history of, of the English church or even the history of Puritanism. If we wanted to do a history of Puritanism, we could just do a deep dive on tons of Puritans and we could go down that road. But our goal here has been to specifically talk about the subject of worship, the history of worship. And so trying to stay focused. And we took that summer break. And so we lost a little bit of the, of the steam that I think we were probably building. But remember, we've looked at the early church. We've looked at the Middle Ages. We, we looked at the period before the Reformation and after the Reformation. But we're getting closer to the time that really represents the worship that we see in a church like our own. Um, and so I want to talk about the Westminster Assembly a little bit. The Westminster Assembly gets, is convened in 1643. It works until um, – actually, I have a wrong date here. 1653 is wrong. It's 1649. Uh, so they work for six years. And what we're talking about here is 121 um, theologically-minded men. They, the word we use for that is divines, divines from all over England and Scotland – and they came together to work in the Jerusalem Chamber in Westminster Abbey. You can still go to the Jerusalem Chamber today. Uh, you can still see where they did their work. And these men came together. And the goal was to write a confession for the English church that everyone in the kingdom could basically sign on to and agree with. And a good start was given with the 39 articles, which I haven't talked about. And they basically built off of the previously written 39 articles. Um, some of the men that wrote on this, I don't know if any of these names will be familiar to you, but I'm going to mention a few. One, one is somebody named Anthony Burgess. Another is Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs is another person who, if you read his sermons, you will benefit greatly. Uh, he's got a book on the Ten Commandments that's wonderful. Uh, I think he's got one on the Lord's Prayer as well. Um, another person at the Westminster Assembly was Joseph Carroll. The reason I want to mention Joseph Carroll is because he famously preached on the book of Job for 15 years. So <laughs> we're going to talk about, again, we're going to talk about the fact that they, sometimes the Puritans could not stop themselves from, from doing the slow crawl through books of the Bible. I mean, just think of the book of Job. Sometimes when you're in the book of Job, you're reading things that aren't true. Now, I, I don't mean they're not inspired, but I mean you will read speeches from people who are later end up being wrong. In the book of Job, you know, Job's friends who give maybe bad advice. Um, imagine preaching and combing through that every week. You know, you've just read this passage and then you're going to have to say, you know, Eliphaz is wrong about this. Bildad doesn't know what he's talking about here. He gets corrected by God later. You know, so preaching Job uh, at all is a challenging thought. And then the idea of preaching so slowly that it takes you 15 years to preach it. And so... Uh, he, they published his, these sermons on Job and it was 12 volumes. So you can buy 12 volumes and it's essentially a commentary on Job. Um, Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin is another writer who is sweet to taste. He is just, he has a, he has a real sense of the loveliness of Jesus. Uh, if you have read, um, if you have read, um, oh no, I'm going to forget the book. It just came out. Uh, we got, we gave away tons of copies. Uh, Gentle and Lowly. If you read Gentle and Lowly, then you probably are find that name familiar because Thomas Goodwin gets quoted an awful lot uh, in that book. Uh, William Gouge, William Twiss, James Usher, 
Uh, Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, um, if, if you read anything from Samuel Rutherford, the thing you probably will know him the best for is his letters, strangely enough, because he wrote pastorally rich letters to people. And we have a huge collection of them. I could have brought them out as one of my displays, but I didn't do it. Um, the letters of, of uh, Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish commissioner. So was George Gillespie. George Gillespie was another Scottish commissioner because their plan was to produce something that, that the churches in Scotland and England could all sign on to. The hope really was to bring the kingdom together. And so... Uh, What are they trying to do? They want the Church of England and the Church of Scotland to revise their system of beliefs and find commonality so they could live in close communion with each other. And they produced a confession that would hopefully reflect all the parties involved. The Westminster Assembly then produces a confession, a shorter catechism, and a larger catechism. Um, It was never ratified. It did not become the official statement of the Church of England. The Westminster Standards did not lay out particular forms of church government. If you read the Westminster Confession, trying to find what Presbyterian church government looks like, you won't find it there. Because this is a document that was written by Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Episcopalians. All of them working together. They have the same theology and they don't have the same church government views. They don't have the same polity. Um, In theory, you could have a church that is Episcopal or Congregational or Presbyterian, and they all use the Westminster Standards as their uh, standards of theology. The only group that actually adopted it as their official church statement was the Scottish Presbyterians. This is where our own uh, history comes from. This is where we see our own forefathers, really, is the Scottish Presbyterians. Um, It explains why we love the Westminster Standards, but we don't belong to the Church of England (laughs) because the Church of England never adopted this statement, and we did. Um, For the remainder of our time, here's what I'm going to do, and this is going to be purely by accident. When I talk about the Puritans and Puritan worship, I'm going to conflate Puritan worship and Presbyterian worship. Uh, Whether that's historically accurate or not, I just know that I'm going to screw up, and I'm going to speak of them both interchangeably. Um, so yeah, please forgive me for when, I, when I scramble them up together. If you want to know what Presbyterian worship looked like or what Puritan worship looked like, the best place to look is something called the Directory of Worship, which the Westminster Assembly also produced. The Directory of Worship is part of our church's standards. It's in our book of church order. Um, No parts of it are binding on us as officers in the church except the sections on baptism, the Lord's Supper, and very recently we changed this, the section on marriage. So the section on marriage is binding on us as well as the section on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the directory of worship didn't set forth a specific liturgy that churches had to follow, but here's what it did do. It laid the ground rules for worship. Um, The directory of worship laid out boundaries within which worship could take place. Um, And it defined characteristics. um, Hold on, let me stop for a second. So it lays out the general outline of worship, but it doesn't give specifics because that was the problem they had with the Church of England was the Church of England over-prescribed and detailed all of the little things that you should do, not just in general But in every worship service. So they had basically the whole year planned out. And the Puritans wanted much more freedom when it came to worship. Uh, 
And so when you look at Puritan worship, I think you could say three things at least about Puritan worship. One is it was God-centered. We will talk more about these. It was scripturally saturated, scripturally saturated, lots of Bible reading in the Puritan service. And it was also structurally simple. Um, So what do I mean by structurally simple? I mean, maybe you look at our worship order of worship, you open up our bulletin and you think there's nothing simple about this service at all. This is all, there's all kinds of stuff in here. And if you come from a sort of a contemporary background, uh, you might look at Presbyterian worship and think, oh, this is very liturgical. I've heard that phrase sometimes refer to Presbyterian worship. It's very liturgical. Um, and what they mean by that is it's very structured. It's very formal. Um, that's usually what's meant by that. But the services themselves are, are very simple and are intentionally missing extra biblical elements or traditions. So the idea was, especially when the, the way the Presbyterians planned their worship services, they said, if it wasn't found in Scripture, the Puritans wanted it removed. If it was not found in Scripture, they wanted to yank it out and put it somewhere else. Maybe it's beneficial, but it shouldn't be part of the worship service. And so all they wanted in the service was God speaking, telling us how to worship and having human traditions set to the side and removed from the actual service so that it's not imposed on us. This was a very big priority for the Presbyterians. And so if there was a human tradition or a human ceremony or a human routine that didn't come from God's word, they wanted it gone. They wanted it axed. So when you read the, the, the directory of public worship, it left freedom for ministers and for churches to pour content into the elements of worship, but it didn't dictate every detail. So what do I mean by that? Well, I have written down here in tiny writing uh, so that no one can actually read it, but so that I can point to it. Um, the, the, the directory of worship, I'm actually going to just pull back a little bit from the mic just so that you guys can have a better view of, the, um, of this. Um, what did the directory of worship lay out as the elements of worship? So here's the way that the directory of worship sort of laid out a worship service. First of all, it said it should begin with a call to worship. And the call to worship should come from God's word. Uh, The call to worship should be God speaking to the people and saying, come and worship me. Um, I've done, in fact, I've evolved on how I write calls to worship. When I was in my first church, I would pick just an inspirational passage from scripture uh, as a call to worship. And um, some passage that said something beautiful, you know. I would pick, you know, something like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's come and worship the Lord together. And an older minister that would sit in on the worship services uh, pointed out to me that in that passage, God's not calling us to worship. It's saying something beautiful and true and good about God, but it's not a call to worship. And so I remember at that point thinking, I need to be more careful about actually choosing passages where God tells us to come into his presence and worship so that when we come into his worship, we do so from God's authority and not our own authority, right? We want to come in to worship because God says to. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that the church has not always done call, a call to worship at the beginning of service. So there's a, there's a new book out that I think it came out like a year or two ago, and it's full of calls to worship, and I really appreciate it. But in that volume, the authors speak at the beginning, and they point out that um, the church hasn't always done calls to worship. 
Uh, there were times where Calvin would just simply say, let's come into the Lord's presence and worship him. And they, that would be a sufficient call to worship. Yeah, Ben. So, well, actually, we talked about this in the very first one or, or very, very early on when we started this series because we're on like, tw- believe it or not, we're on like episode 20 or whatever, if, you, if, these are, if these are episodes. And at the very beginning, we talked actually about the um, worship in the, in the Old Testament, worship in the New Testament, worship in the synagogues. And one of the things that we worked through was in Nehemiah, where the people are standing and they're hearing a sermon and they're showing the responsiveness of the people. And so you probably see maybe the, maybe some of the earliest liturgy ha- happening at before the mountain uh, and um, in Nehemiah when the people are, are sort of renewing their covenant with God. Um, that would be a good place to look early on. But really the early church takes their liturgies from the, the synagogue. But for them, it's Christ now. So they take the synagogue and they see what they were doing in the synagogue as pointing to Jesus. And so our services even today look a lot like the synagogue services. Um, that's, that ends up being where you start seeing that formal thing start to t- take a shape that we would recognize. Um, so, they, so the way that the Puritans said, they said, begin with a call to worship and then have a prayer of adoration. Followed by singing a psalm. They had a lot of psalm singing in their services. Um, followed by a reading from the Old Testament. They wanted at least a chapter read from the Bible. They wanted at least a chapter read from the Old Testament. We'll talk about this. Um, but they had to actually like mandate it in Scotland because some, some people weren't doing it. Um, then followed by a, a psalm, then a New Testament reading, and then a prayer of confession. The prayer of confession would vary. It depended on the minister. It depended on the church. Some confessions were written confessions that the people would read. Some of the Puritans were very allergic to any of these set prayers like that. And so for many of them, like somebody like John Owen, they would say these need to be spontaneous, extemporaneous prayers. Um, But they would have a prayer of confession. Um, They would then have a sermon. Imagine that. Yes. (laughs) Sermon. Very important to the Puritans. Um, Followed by a prayer of thanksgiving. Then they would corporately pray the Lord's Prayer. We'll talk about this. This was in the directory of worship that they should pray the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, this is controversial to some Puritans. Um, they would have an offertory. During the offertory, while a psalm was sung, the wine and the bread would be prepared. Um, then they would fence the table. They would set apart the bread and the wine. They would have words of institution. Uh, Then they would give an exhortation. They would give some explanation of what's happening in the supper. What are we doing here? Um, Why do we come to the Lord's table? Uh, Reminding everyone that this was Jesus's idea, not our own. Um, Followed by prayer. Then communion. Some of this is very familiar probably, right? If you're following along, this is really pretty close to what we do. Followed by an exhortation, basically an encouragement to take this thing and carry it with you this week. To, be, to take the blessing of the Lord's Supper and live it out. Um, and then a prayer, then a psalm, and then the benediction. That was your, that, according to the directory of worship, that's the order of service. Yeah. Uh, you said prayer of adoration. Can you just define that? 
Yeah, prayer of adoration would simply be a prayer where we are speaking of the greatness of God. Uh, As we're getting ready to worship, instead of simply uh, talking about ourselves, we talk about him. Um, Prayer of adoration is, is us praising him. It's us saying what God is like. So... Now, we do what we call an invocation, and and the the invocation, what we do is we ask God to be the one to be here in our worship, that he would actually be the one who is spiritually present, that he would be the one who is here carrying us along so that when we worship, we don't just worship by our own strength. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I'm trying to remember how many arguments they make in the directory of worship. I think the directory of worship just sets these things forth. Um, this is sort of what they do as a, as a concept, not necessarily concept. Well, they recognize that there are some parts of the service that have to be organized by the light of nature. In other words, they have to make some sense. Um, at the same time, you know, they're intentionally also making sure that there's freedom. So. Uh, I'd have to go back and read it again, though. I, I know my book of church order much better than I know my directory of worship. So, um, here, What you're seeing here, though, is very, very inspired by what they saw in Geneva. Because remember, remember the, the people who are living in England who are very serious about worship, a lot of them were driven out. Do you remember who they were driven out by? Mary, yeah, Bloody Mary, we'll call her that. Um, Yeah, they were driven out by Bloody Mary, and so they go to Geneva, they spend a great deal of time there, and they come back. And what they really want to do is they're not aping what's going on in Geneva, but they are very inspired by what they saw. Um, Remember this, though, Puritanism is not monolithic. You know, it's easy to talk about Puritanism as if it's like a single system of thought that everybody's on the same page together. There were many commonalities, but they were not always twins. You know, they're not twins of every, everybody's not copies of each other. You have some on the, maybe you could call it the left side of Puritanism, and they favored less liturgy, liturgy more spontaneous forms of worship, right? John Owen, I think, is the classic example of this. John Owen, if you know who he is, he, he disapproved of set prayers in worship. Uh, he believed that set prayers quenched the spirit. Um, he even argued against using the Lord's Prayer in public worship, um, which seems, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, you're going to see where I am on this. It's Jesus' words, so it's very hard for me to argue that you shouldn't repeat Jesus' words. But, but that was his argument. His argument was that, prayer, that worship should be very spontaneous and that you should not have set prayers in public worship. Um, so usually you have these folks in the church, in the assembly, who are independents. Um, they tended to object to specific, non-scriptural, non-canonical set prayers um, many of them even objected to having the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which, again, for me, that's just too far because you need to also remember that you are part of the church that's historically come before. It's very important to affirm that as well. Uh, we are not a new branch of the church. We are part of the old branch. Um, some in Puritanism re- re- objected to responsive readings, and they re- rejected those because they insisted that the minister is the one appointed to read God's word aloud in worship. And if you're doing responsive reading, who else is reading scripture aloud? 
the other people, right? Whoever's responding, they're also part of the reading of scripture. And so some said, look, you shouldn't even have the congregation speak. Or in other words, there shouldn't be something antiphonal going on where one speaks, then the other responds. And so the reason I'm pointing this out is not because I agree with that. I don't because you've seen we have antiphonal calls to worship here in our church. We have antiphonal prayers where where the person leading will pray and then the per, and then the congregation will respond. And so I think it's biblical for God's people to be responding audibly to what's being said. I think if you really took that argument to its logical conclusion, people wouldn't be able to sing in worship either because they are singing presumably what God's word says. And so I think it's a step too far. Um, but we may end up talking about that when we get to the chapter or when we get to the next section eventually when we finish on the Puritans. Because we'll start talking about what should our worship actually include. Um, there were some who objected to the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, the doxology. And the reason was because of this. They did, the detested Episcopalians persecuted the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians insisted on these things. And so... Some Presbyterians retained them, but not all of them did. So for some, it actually wasn't even about, I've got a problem with the Nicene Creed. I've got a problem with the Apostles' Creed. I've got a problem with the Lord's Prayer. But it was because the other people are trying to make us do it. And so because of that, their consciences are being imposed upon. And so they said that we shouldn't do it at all. Um, So the reason I'm, again, I'm mentioning this because there are a variety of reasons why people arrived during the Puritan era at different conclusions when it came to worship. Um, Some Presbyterians ceased even public reading of scripture altogether. Instead, they read it only in conjunction with the preaching of the word. They said the word of God should only be read with in conjunction with the preaching of the word of God. Because if you just read scripture and don't give explanation or like Nehemiah says, give a sense of what the text says, then all you're doing is confusing people and all you're doing is letting God's word go out, but without an instructional element to it. So again, I'm just really showing you the Puritans had a variety of ways that they approached some of these. We don't want to think of them as a monolith. Um, Later on, the Church of England actually reproved churches who did this. They said, look, you need to be, make sure you read a chapter of the Old Testament and a chapter of the New Testament in your services. Um, Nick Needham, he wrote a book called uh, – actually, he wrote a really good book. I think it was called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, I think. That is a really good book to read if you are not an expert in theology and you're not an expert in church history, but you really want a big overview of the history of the church. So let me mention that to you. I don't think I have any physical copies of that. I have it, I have it all digitally. Um, and as I've read it, I have found that, you know, what would be really good, would, this would be a really good book for somebody who's not an expert. They're not seminary trained. They, they, they don't know all this stuff. And they really would like an introduction. It's a lengthy set, but it's, it's really not hard to read. So I would really recommend that if you're looking for something good to read uh, on the subject of, of church history. But here's what, here's what Nick Needham says. He says, The permanent strength of Puritan worship was its sense of reverence and anticipation, its conscious, prayerful reliance on the Holy Spirit to bless every ordinance, its Eucharistic consciousness, and its perhaps unrivaled sermonic power. Puritan preaching remains one of the brightest glories of pulpit history for its saturation in Scripture and searching application to the human heart, which 
I think that's a beautiful summary of the strength of Puritan worship and the strength of Puritan sermons. So I think if we remember Puritanism for anything today, it's probably Puritan preaching, which is what I want to spend a good piece of of our time talking about. And then I want to go into one Puritan sermon by Richard Sibbs. So I I don't think we'll get to the Sibbs sermon today. We're going to do that next week. Um, But here's what I want to say about Puritan preaching. Boom, point two. By the way, this is down here because I wrote it last week, so it's all out of order. Uh, I wrote it last week, and I didn't want to rewrite it all this morning. (laughs) Um, Puritanism was ultimately a movement about the reform of worship. And this was because worship was deeply important to the Christian experience. And, And here's what Hughes Old says. This is what Hughes Oliphant Old says. He says, for the Puritans, the reformation of the right was only a means of reforming the inner life of the Christian. It was the reforming of the heart that really interested them. And yet they recognized that outward reforming of the institution of the church and the forms of public worship was an important means to that end, right? So you have to reform the worship services so that you can get at reforming the hearts of people because that's ultimately the goal. The goal is for people to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so... You can't leave the, the, the worship uh, as they knew it under Roman Catholicism in place. It had to be changed. And so in order for people's hearts and minds to be changed, the preaching of the word had to be central to worship. That was, that was the commitment that the Puritans had. Why? Because the preaching of the word of God was the means that God had given to reform hearts. Like you, you, if you're not preaching God's word, the Puritans believed, and I, I'm... I'm very privy to this. <laughs> if, you, if you're not preaching the word, then God's not speaking to people. Uh, if someone else is speaking to them. Somebody smart, maybe. Somebody very intelligent. But not, but not God, which is, which is what people need. And so the medieval church had embraced the importance of preaching. So I, I said this back when we talked about the Middle Ages. And I want to just really emphasize this. Much of medieval preaching had like drifted off and many of those who were commentating on scripture in the Middle Ages didn't know what they were doing because they didn't know the original languages. So there are all these weaknesses to a lot of preaching in the Middle Ages. But don't, don't, uh, don't be mistaken and think that they stopped preaching in the Middle Ages or that we, preaching had fallen off. It had just become something that very few people could follow. Um, what this meant in the Middle Ages was the sermon could be bad, but because the Lord's Supper was seen as being at the center, the preaching could be weak, right? Because the most important thing was getting the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is the center of it all. The Lord's Supper is the thing you're aiming at. Who cares if the sermon is bad or maybe if it was read from a, a, a little booklet and the guy preaching didn't even write it, you know? As long as something was said that got you to the the Eucharist, that got you to the Lord's Supper. And so preaching was seen as the means, uh, as the means and the end of worshiping by the sacraments. So the the reformers, what do they do? They move the table from the center, from the center to the side, and they move what to the center? Yeah. (laughs) The pulpit, right? They move the pulpit to the center because they're showing physically in the sanctuary what they believed and what their commitment was that the preaching of the word was central. Um, It wasn't to displace or downplay the importance of the sacraments, but it was reclaiming the centrality of the preaching of the word. 
The big contribution of the reformers, and especially I already pointed this out with Calvin, was to place preaching of the preaching of Christ and his word at the center of the worship service and to see that it was a form of worship. To preach is a form of worship. That was the contribution of the reformers. Um, Luther actually went further. Luther talked about preaching as a sacrament, which I wouldn't use that language, um, but he talked about it as a sacrament. Um, the Puritans are very influenced by the Reformation. Um, and because of this, Puritanism produces profound preaching because they were taught by the folks on the continent that this is so important. And so in that sense, there's this rich buffet of preachers during the Puritan era that are worth looking at. Um, I want to say a few things about Puritan preaching. Um, and then we'll look at my, I think my favorite example of Puritan preaching, it's Richard Sibbs. At the start of the Puritan era, think about what's going on, right? There's there reform going on in the Church of England. What you had was you had people that couldn't preach all over the place in England. It was not unusual to go to an English parish and find no one capable of preaching any kind of sermon or explaining the text. What did they do then? Um, well, here's what Hughes Old says. He says, what Elizabeth was content with, remember Elizabeth the Queen? Elizabeth says she thought that it was fine that perhaps a dozen good preachers were enough for the whole kingdom. Just think about that. She said it's fine if we have a dozen good preachers for the whole kingdom because she was content to have ministers read from the official book of homilies. So just think about this. She's, she's, she's like, what if we just have a dozen or two good preachers in the kingdom? They can write the sermons and then you can send them out to the different parishes and then someone can get up each Sunday and they can read the sermon from a book. It's the first multi-site model. Right? It's a multi-site model. That's Elizabeth's plan. Perfect application. Yeah. I mean, it's a multi-site church and that's what she kind of envisions. Because what do you want? It's almost like the franchise model, right? Elizabeth's idea is you go into that church, you see the same kind of service. You go to this church, it's the same kind of service. Every church, you could predict they're going to even use the same text every Sunday. So it was very much like this idea of, yeah, you go to a church and you can predict everything. You can even predict the sermon. And so, yikes, right? A, a kingdom of ministers, most of whom would just read other people's sermons. So the Church of England simply was not producing men of serious heart and mind who would take the word of God seriously in their preaching, which is, that's, that's starvation, right? That's like farmers that don't know how to plow. Um, so... You have these specific observations that I want to make about Puritan preaching before we look at Richard Sibbs next week. Puritan preaching was marked by a very plain style. So when we say that, what we mean is this is like a contrast to the way that the Anglicans would do it, the way that the non-Puritans would do it. Um, one example of this would be somebody like John Donne. Have you ever heard of the sonnets of John Donne? Has anyone read those before? Uh, he wrote poems, love poems, just a beautiful writer. Like John Don, nobody, nobody writes like John Don. Um, D-O-N-N-E is his name. Um, he was an Anglican priest, example of the floral Anglican approach, the opposite of the Puritan style. So here's how J.I. Packer describes John Don. This is, this is what, if you heard a sermon from John Don, this is what you would get. His range was narrow, but when he focused on matters of Christian devotion, he was superb. His piety was undoubtedly Puritan in style. Nonetheless, when Don preached, and there are eight volumes of his printed sermons to prove this, he allowed himself, like Andrews and Hooker, to become literary 
and fanciful in how he expressed things. This meant that the congregation could simply sit back and listen to a performance rather than be summoned to deeper commitment, purer and stronger faith and fuller discipleship. Um, If you've ever heard a sermon where you felt like it wasn't calling you to something, where instead you were hearing just a masterful delivery, that's what you were getting with some of the better Anglican preachers. And the way that Packer puts it, these men use their sermons to demonstrate their mastery, both of Christian theology and of literary language. They thought that by putting on this show of elegance and eloquence, they were honoring God. And so here's what people learned. People learned that with Puritan preaching, you would get what Richard Baxter described as a plain and pressing downright sermon. Plain and pressing downright sermon. That's Baxter's description. Um, Here's how Packer describes it again. He says, by 1640, everybody understood that the Puritans wanted to bring you to faith and make a real Christian out of you. And the non-Puritan Anglicans, well, they preached from time to time, but their critics often regarded their preaching as akin to play acting. So if you've ever, maybe you've come across something like this before, um, you know, the Puritans didn't mind um, stepping on your toes. They would do a sermon where they would, would step on your toes. Um, this was something that you didn't find nearly as often with the Anglicans. And so the Puritans were more interested, what, in making a real Christian out of you. The assumption of the Puritans was all of us in this room, they would, you know, if a Puritan was here right now, they would say, look, all of us are in this room because we're all professing faith in Jesus and we're all in England, which is a Christian nation. And so my job up here is to make you see that you're not a real Christian and that you actually do need to be converted and you need to have the new birth. Um, You can imagine in that context how that kind of preaching would really be called for. And so that's what the Puritans would do. They would preach that way. And it's why when you read them, it's why, it's why we're still publishing their volumes. And I just don't know anybody that buys the sermons of John Donne. Um, I mean, somebody must. Um, but there's a reason why those kind of sermons still resonate with us because ultimately we all still need to be challenged to that, even if we're in church. If we're in church, we all need to be encouraged that, you know, I need to, I need to have real faith in Jesus, not just play-acted faith, not just going through the motions of Christianity. I need to actually trust in Jesus and be challenged in the ways that maybe I'm not trusting in him. Um, that is the difference with Puritan preaching. Um, the, pre- the Puritans didn't mind long sermons. In their minds, uh, if this was about the most important thing in life, why would we mind what Hughes Oliphant calls a second turn of the hourglass? <laughs> uh, why, why would we mind, right? It, it's worth remembering that this was a time when people would find it entertaining to listen to someone speak. Now, if you listen to a podcast, maybe you know exactly what that's like. You find it actually, it turns out in some situations, we do find it entertaining to listen to people speak. Well, if you were engaging people with really, truly important ideas, then it was easy to keep somebody there and keep someone listening for a long time. Um, I actually used to not relate to this, but now I do. I am at the age now where I find TV and movies boring. And my wife makes fun of me because we'll start watching like a TV show at night and I will, 50% of the time I'll fall asleep during it. I, I don't find TV and movies as interesting as I used to. Uh, and I find books much more engaging now. So I don't know if, I don't know if I would call that maturing. I think my wife has told people that I'm maturing, which I appreciate hearing. Um, 
But in either case, like I guess I see the limits of the stuff that people find entertaining now. And I am getting to that place where I kind of uh, resonate with the people who could sit for a few hours and listen to something. Um, I'm not suggesting that we need to start having two-hour services here uh, at Evergreen. Um, but see, thank you, thank you. You're a very, you're a sweetheart that checks in the mail. Um, <clears throat> but this is this is probably a different topic for a different day. But the the people of the 17th century did find ideas and speeches to be interesting. They found them to be entertaining. There were also people who were bored by those things. So you still had people all over the place. Here's what I would say: we ought to challenge ourselves with, and maybe this is a good place to stop because we don't have enough time. It's 12:15 now. Um, but maybe we should discipline ourselves to have better attention spans. Uh, I'm seriously not preparing you for longer sermons, I promise. Um, <laughs> but we should ask God to help us have better attention spans, shouldn't we? And to give our attention to things that matter. Uh, I suppose that's one way that the Puritans could be, still be an inspiration for us. Um, I'm actually just going to stop because it's 12.15. And I never build good stopping places into these Sunday school classes. So... When we come back next week, we will talk about Richard Sibbs and we will talk about a little bit more about Puritan sermons before we get to Sibbs. So let me pray and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word in which you do challenge us to be real Christians. Uh, for we thank you for your word in which you do press upon us. And we ask that you would help us to be, to care deeply about actually being challenged. Help us to actually desire that. Help us to desire to be pressed upon by your word. I pray that your spirit would be living and active in this church. Would you make me faithful <coughs> in my preaching here? Lord, would you make all of those who occupy your pulpits faithful to your word? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.